That was so awesome that Karen started to clap before you were even done. That's amazing. Don't worry, I've done that a lot too. There's a pause and you go. It's okay. At least you didn't honk that horn. If there's anybody here that doesn't know that, that horn you hear at the Pens games, that's Karen. And that's why they win right there. Are you giving autographs? I said to Pastor Brown, I think the Mississippi group mistook you for me today. And uh, I remember when your dad came here. I always remember this, Mary Helen, when John Gordon Roach was here. He hadn't seen me for several years, and he saw me in the hall, and he just went right by. And he said, I want to meet Craig Brown. They get your messages. Speaking of that, please welcome and receive as Christ received us into glory. And it's always a pleasure to welcome and put some flesh on one of our DVD groups, one of our outposts, one of our part of our phalanx, part of our flesh and blood. The Ferguson family, they're here with us today from Madison, Mississippi. Fred and Mary Helen, Sela and Jack, please stand, you guys. We want to welcome you as always. Good to see you guys. Are you still pirate fans? They're having a rough. Maybe now now that you're here, they'll have some get out of their slump. And we will be having communion service today. And I want to extend that welcome to all. And I mean all. On a sad but celebratory note, Tedelestai and me representing the phalanx, I want to extend our condolences to John, John Durst, on the passing of his mom this week, and she was about my mom's age too, and I know the punch in the stomach that feels like, and our condolences to you and Tori, your four brothers, your family, on the passing of Agnes May Durst, she Loved her family with a deep abiding love. She loved her church with a deep abiding love. She's in the embrace of the Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ, even now. And today we have anyone that has the opportunity on today from 2 to 4 and 7 to 9 p.m. John and the family will be receiving guests at the Job, Lindsay Job Funeral Home in Harrison City, and that's on 3343 Route 130 in Harrison City. I believe the information will be out at the information table, and that's today. And then the funeral will be at 11 a.m. Monday with Reverend Diane Wiley officiating. And again, the information is out at the information table. Please turn this morning with me to Psalm 98. I appreciate Pastor Messick taking the helm last Sunday. Pam and I had our, it's one of my favorite times of the year, time to take our grandsons, who really held us to the, held our feet to the fire on this. 
to the Sights and Sounds Theater in Lancaster where we all saw Jesus and will never be the same. Actually, the man who played him, I, I loved it. I thought he did a fantastic job. And how they ever got everything in from the birth to the ascension, even outlining many of the parables, is impossible to describe. It was just wonderful. And those who reported to me that you'd seen it first, you certainly gave good reviews, and I appreciate it. So I guess it's my job to come back and give it a eight thumbs up from Cole and Adrian and Pam and I. It really is a remarkable ministry that they have out there. It began with very humble beginnings, and now it's thousands of people every day for a year. Three shows, many days, and the gospel is going forth with very clear tones. My heart has been riveted on one verse. I'm not preaching on it today, but I think the spirit of that verse will come through. Really, too, in Psalm 73, 24 and 25. And my prayer to God has been the echo of that. Mainly, I have no one in heaven but you. And there is none on earth I desire more than you. This has been, the more I know him, the more I want to know him. And of course, Psalm 7324 really is, resonates for all of us. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me into glory. That sums up our existence. Now... At the turn of the ages, during this apocalyptic, eschatological war, in this clashing turn of the ages, in this time of great conflict, he guides us with his counsel, which is what he's doing today as a phalanx. And he will afterwards receive us into glory. This is also the statement of his own son, Jesus, on the earth. I do nothing unless the Father tells me. I Say nothing unless I hear my father. I do nothing unless I see my father. The father guided the son with his counsel, guided him through the unspeakable sufferings of the passion, his crucifixion, and then his death and resurrection, and afterwards received him into glory. As Jesus said in his resurrection sermon, Are you not aware of what all the prophets have said? That Christ must suffer to enter his glory. And we are children of God. And if children, heirs together with him. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Seeing that we also suffer with him. We too will enter into glory. After a time of suffering. The sufferings of this present age. But during this time, he guides us with his counsel. The more you get to know him, the more you'll understand and the more we'll understand together. There is none on earth I desire more than you. We thank you for that, Father. Now, today, 
I'm going into the subject of the royal motif, part four, and it will hopefully segue rather seamlessly into our communion service. And again, all are welcome. Jürgen Moltmann quotes a Jewish scholar, and I don't think there's any better place to have dialogue with Jewish scholars and Christian theologians than this point made by a man named Franz Rosenzweig, Franz Rosenzweig, who wrote a famous book called The Star of Redemption. And in The Son of Righteousness, Jürgen Moltmann cites him and quotes him in this way under the title of The Interpretation of the Shekinah, that's the glory of God, very famous word which we will look at again and again, Shekinah of God in contemporary literature. Rosenzweig's interpretation of the Shekinah is as follows, and he cites it this way. The Shekinah, God's descent to human beings and his dwelling among them, That's a good definition for Shekinah, God's descent to human beings and his dwelling among them is thought of as a separation which takes place in God himself. God cuts himself off from himself. He gives himself away to his people. He suffers with their suffering. He goes with them into the misery of a foreign land. He wanders with their wanderings. Inherent in God's surrender of himself to Israel is a divine suffering. And this is the phrase that really hit my soul and accented it. God himself makes himself in need of deliverance. God himself makes himself in need of deliverance. What an astonishing reality. It can only be explained in Jesus. The weakness of God indeed is stronger than the strength of men. The cross is foolish because it portrays a God who made himself to be in need of deliverance. It portrays a God a savior God who put himself in the place of needing salvation. And this can be tested out in Psalm 98. Please bear in mind, this is one of the things that's kind of a constant pain in the neck to me, but I'll do it anyway. Psalm 98 That's the LXX. The Greek translation is 97. So just bear that in mind because I'm taking this from the Greek text. Psalm 98, the Greek text is 97, is what I would call a futuristic retrospective psalm. In other words, it is from the viewpoint of what is future to us. It is certainly from the viewpoint of what was future to the psalmist. The Greek text says it was David. But it's a psalm that views from the future, retrospectively, looking back, 
at all of time and history and all of creation and all the nations in the light of the Christ event, in the light of Christ and him crucified, in the light of the Shekinah of God who made his dwelling with us. Shekinah is related, in fact, to the word skenao, tented, tabernacled with us. The word became flesh. When the word became flesh, God was placing himself in a place where he would need deliverance. But this was directed toward a plan in which God would be all in all. In the deliverance of Jesus Christ, who cried out to him from the cross, is the deliverance of all mankind and all of creation and the redemption of all of history and all of its times. When Christ returns, all times will be simultaneous. All peoples will be raised and be together and all together see the salvation of God. The salvation of God has a strange Double meaning. It's the salvation from God, but it began with the salvation of God who became flesh, who took up a cross and in his crucifixion cried out, deliver me. And was with strong crying and tears. He was heard by the father. So Psalm 98 is a futuristic retrospective psalm. By that I mean this psalm has the perspective of our future. That which is future to us. It is a future brought about by the Christ event. And by that I mean the incarnation, the life lived in the flesh, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension and his sitting down at the right hand of the Father. This is a future brought about by the Christ event, which is in our past. He looks back on God's wonderful performance. And that's what the Bible is all about. This is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, said the psalmist. Our salvation is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Inasmuch as it's your doing, it's not so marvelous. Inasmuch as you perceive it to be something that you've done or something that you have met in terms of an instrument or a means of salvation, it's not so wonderful. But to those of us who know that it's all about God's action in Christ, it's marvelous. This psalm is about God's wonderful performance by which he brought salvation to himself and with him to all the nations and to all creation. This follows then on our royal theme, and I think you'll see this soon, which we dealt with two weeks ago in Psalm 22. I've translated the first three verses, and then I'm going to read the second half of the psalm under the Holman Christian standard. But listen to this. This is the Greek text now. It says a psalm of David. David is the royal king. 
Jesus descended from David according to the flesh and therefore from the tribe of Judah. He is the king of the Jews. Sing to the Lord a new song. This is a new song that resonates throughout the New Testament, the new creation. It is the song of the new creation. It resonates throughout Revelation, as we've seen. Sing a new song to the Lord. A new song because he has performed wonderfully. Because he has performed wonderfully. This reverberates throughout Romans, the epistle. He has performed wonderfully. His right hand and his holy arm has saved him. Who is him? The one who made himself in need of deliverance. The weakness of God. It's foolishness to hear such a thing, isn't it? Not if to you the power And the wisdom of God is in the word of the cross. The Lord has made known his salvation. The word is soterion, echoed in Romans 1.16. He has apocalypto, apocalyptically revealed his righteousness. Where do we see that phrase? How about the key or the thesis verse of Romans? In it, the gospel of which I am not ashamed, which is the power of salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is apocalypto. That's right here in Psalm 98.1. 98.2, make that. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has apocalypsed, I'll say, his righteousness, the word dikaiosune. The key word in Romans. In the sight of the nations. We could say for all the nations to see. He has remembered his mercy to Jacob. What is the mercy that he showed to Jacob? Something, a strand of thread I'll have to pick up in the future. But in Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestled with the man all night long. And at the end, that man said to Jacob. Your name now is Israel. By mercy, he called a person who was not Israel, Israel. By his mercy, he has made us the Israel of God. He has remembered his mercy to Jacob. Mercy there, Elias, used in Romans 11.32. He has shut up or imprisoned all in unbelief and disobedience in order to have mercy on all. Through the faithfulness and obedience of Jesus the Christ. He remembered his mercy to Jacob and his truth. That's his utter reliability or his truth is reality. That's also echoed in Romans 15, 8. To the house of Israel, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That not only means the salvation that comes from God, but it indicates the deliverance of God himself. The salvation of God is the deliverance of Jesus Christ, who by taking up the cross 
made himself to be God in need of deliverance. Another reason why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? First of all, to identify himself as the royal seed of David. Secondly, to reveal that he is the God who made himself in need of deliverance by God. Now, if God's, the mystery of God's will is to sum up everything in Jesus Christ, and it is in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, that salvation of Jesus Christ is the salvation of all of humankind whom he represents and of all creation. For it does not say only that he became a man, but that he became flesh. He became one with the material creation in all of its times. And so his screams from the cross show his solidarity and his oneness with the screaming creation who even now experience the birth pangs of the intense anticipation of being delivered into the liberty of the sons of God. With the salvation of Jesus Christ, also known as God the Savior, in need of salvation. Do you realize that according to that proper interpretation of the Shekinah, when the glory of God came to dwell among his people and we beheld his glory, that it was with the intention of going away into a far land, in the far and miserable foreign land, away from the Father, with his people, to suffer with his people, and to suffer as the single inclusive representative of his people. And that by becoming flesh, he was becoming God in need of deliverance. This is not discovered by philosophy because philosophy rules this out. This is not a scientific discovery because science overlooks this. There's something worse than blasphemy and slander. It's dismissal altogether of God. If you've been slandered, you know it hurts. If you've been Maligned, you know, it hurts. Doesn't hurt as bad as just being dismissed. The cross, the word of the cross, just dismissed. God in need of deliverance, unthinkable. But that's the job of the preacher is to bring the unthinkable to the thoughts of God's people. This little phalanx, this little flock is intended by God like all little flocks of believers to represent the universal unity in all creation that will be manifested when all times are simultaneous and all flesh is raised to see the salvation of God and to experience that salvation. 
That's what the communion service is about. The representative of the community in unity with the anticipation of his coming again. When all creation, all of history will be simultaneously present. All humanity simultaneously raised. All creation liberated from the slavery to corruption. The trees will clap their hands. The rivers will sing with the new song. The mountains will sing. The calves will go from their stalls. To the delight of many of you, you'll see your pets again. To say nothing of your loved ones that have passed on. Usually when people think of their pets, they think, oh yeah, and my family. I mean, that's people that really love their pets, you know. All nations will see. Well, what about the nation of Assyria? I can't see. It's gone. What about the nation SPQR, the Roman Empire? I can't, how can they see? They're gone. How can the Babylonians, the nation of Babylon, see? Someday they may see, they may speak about America in the past tense. How can that nation see? They're gone. They came. They're gone. The thing called resurrection makes all nations see the salvation all at once. With the salvation of Jesus Christ, who became sin and underwent absolute death, all human beings were delivered from the power of sin and the reign of death. All nations means all of humanity, which is in keeping with the unconditional promise of God to Abraham. In you, that is in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. An unconditional promise to Abraham, which has a universal horizon. Notice the rest of Psalm 98, which is 97 in the Septuagint. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, be jubilant. This is the fulfillment of the Jubilees when all debts are canceled. All trespass is forgotten. Forgiveness is shout for joy and sing. Sing to the Lord. That's Yahweh or Adonai with the lyre, with the lyre and melodious song, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout triumphantly in the presence of Yahweh, our king. There's your royal motif. Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and all those who live in it, resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. What does that judgment mean if every, everything in creation is supposed to rejoice about it? It's a saving judgment. It's a redeeming judgment. It's a judgment of all that would not be conformed to the image of God in Jesus Christ. 
be glad that all that is not conformed to the image of God in Christ has been judged. All that has not conformed to the image of God in Christ in you and me has been judged. Let's just say it this way. All that you don't want to take to heaven with you ain't going. Or let's say it this way. All that's in your spouse that you don't want to go to heaven ain't going. The next psalm, and I'm not going there except to notice this, is Psalm 99. Well, it's pretty important notice. The Lord reigns as king. We're speaking of God here, himself, the father, but we're also speaking of his human representative. Why do the nations rage and why do the people imagine such a vain enterprise that they can overthrow the Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed king? Psalm 2, 1 and 2. The Lord and his anointed. The Lord and his anointed. That's God as king and his anointed human and divine king, Jesus Christ. The anointed one, the Christ. The Lord reigns as king. Another word. These words are popping. They're buzzing because they come right into Romans the epistle. And they expand out throughout the whole epistle, giving it its meaning from the Psalms. And from the royal sufferer who enters into his glory by suffering. The word in the Greek is basileuo, B-A-S-I-L-E-U. See, there's no dot over the I. See how I creatively took that right out of there. Basileuo. And that's what's found in Romans 5.17, that we reign in life by one, Jesus Christ, who gives justifying life to all human beings by his single act of obedience. God has performed wonderfully. My testimony used to be, I'm saved because I believe that Jesus is the Christ. My testimony now is I'm saved because God has performed wonderfully. I'm saved Because God rewarded the faithfulness of his son with eternal life. I'm saved because the reward of eternal life given to God's son for his faithfulness is also my reward, only it's reckoned to me, not by my faithfulness, but by grace. Another funky kind of a word that doesn't sound like it goes together. The reward is reckoned by grace. How can something be a reward if it's accounted by grace? Very simply, if the reward is accounted to obedience of Jesus Christ, but spills over to those who were disobedient, the reward is reckoned by grace. Romans 4.4, we're going there. Not too distant future. Or have you forgotten what Psalm 18 says? 19 says, when the Messiah speaks and says, he delivered me because he delighted in me. 
He delivered Jesus because he delight. This is my son. I'm well pleased with him. He delivers his son because he's delighted in his son. And Psalm 18:25, to the faithful, God shows himself faithful. To his faithful son, God showed himself faithful in raising him from the dead as the reward for his obedience. So in Romans 1:17, it's been a long time coming to interpret it. The righteousness of God is apocalypto. God's righteousness is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. Do you realize what that's saying? God's righteousness is revealed in his act of raising Jesus Christ from the dead as a reward for Jesus Christ's faithfulness to the extent of death. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, faithful to the extent of making himself in need of deliverance. In the days of his flesh, he cried out with great, strong crying and tears to the one who was able to what? Save him. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus man? Yes. Is Jesus God making himself in need of deliverance from God? Yes. Is he the Shekinah? Yes. Is he the glory of God? Yes. Has he come to dwell with his people? Yes. Has he been beheld by eyes of people who have written of him? Yes, he has. What is the gospel of the glory of the Christ if not that? That the Shekinah has come to rest among his people. And that when he comes again, all times will be simultaneous. All peoples will be joined. Imagine, I can't get over out of my head that Vikings are going to be there. For, I, that's one kind of people I just want to say Vikings are going to be there. Hey, Eric the Red, nice to meet you. I read about you. You pagan, you. My grandson Cole said to me at breakfast, he said, my friend thinks Christianity is the only good religion. All the rest of them are bad. And I said, tell your friend that all the other religions are groping for the God that we know in Christ. They're groping for him. They're looking for him. I didn't want him to start thinking about being a crusader whether for Christianity or for any other religion. That's not the point. Paul said it in Acts 17. This unknown God, you have a statue to him, and I know that you're groping after him. I'm here to declare who he is and what he's done. And he's going to judge all the earth in righteousness by one whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus. What did they do? Dismissed it. With laughter, they dismissed it. Some of them said, well, we'll hear you again some other time, which is another way of saying, bye. Like that Finnish comedian, he came and discovered that in America, he started to discover some of the sayings that we say. He says, I have discovered, for example, that when you say, can I help you? You mean, go away. (laughs) When they said, we'll hear you again sometime, they were saying, go away. But he had two converts that became remarkable in their mission of the gospel from Athens. 
now. He's coming to judge the earth. Why would the psalmist, what did the psalmist think judgment? What do you think judgment is going to be? What did you used to think judgment was going to be when you read the Jack Chick track? This was your life. Or when you listen to Jonathan Edwards' revivalistic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which was a blasphemous sermon, unfortunately the most so-called important sermon in America's founding. Tells you something about them. Things got to be changed around here. What did you think of judgment then? What did the psalmist think about judgment when he tells the whole creation and all of its times to shout with joy because the Lord is coming to judge? He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly, it says. The next psalm again, the Lord reigns as king. Compare that verb basileo to Romans 5.17 and 5.21. Grace now reigns through righteousness. Death once reigned through the disobedience of one man. Now, grace reigns through the righteousness, the righteous act of one man. Look at this verse, though. It begins this way. The Lord reigns as king, and his seat is on the winged ones. Those are the cherubim. He's referring to the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where the blood was applied. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat, the propitiation, not for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, says 1 John 2.1. Who is the righteous one then in Romans 1.17? The righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. The righteous one, Jesus Christ. The propitiation for our sins. Where is the king reigning? He is reigning. It says here. On the winged ones. That is. That's where the Shekinah is. The Shekinah glory is seen. Above the cherubim. Who overlook the mercy seat. The propitiation. For the sins of the whole world. If you have been justified by his blood and you have, how much more will you now be saved by his life? His life. Here's the Shekinah again, between the two cherubim above the mercy seat. God is Yahweh the king, and Jesus is his human and divine representative. The single inclusive representative of all mankind And the beginning of the new creation of God. I am, he says, to the church of Laodicea, to that addressable community of liberated wills. He says, I, this is what I'm saying, the beginning of the creation of God. And so... In him is all the reality of God. In him bodily resides all the fullness of deity. That means in Jesus Christ all of deity is found. All of the reality of who God is is Jesus. But now he is also all of the reality of who mankind is. And all the reality of what creation is. Reality is 
simply Jesus. In him is all the reality of God, Colossians 2.9. It says it that way very clearly. In him, Jesus resides bodily, somaticos, all of deity, the pleroma of divinity. And you are complete in him. You are in him, complete, who is the head over principalities and powers. You don't need circumcision, you males, in order to enter into the covenant people of God. You have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. When he put off from himself the old humanity. He is the reality of all creation. He is the reality of all history. He's the king of the ages, says 1 Timothy 1.17, the Lord and king of the ages. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. There is no place of the dead where Jesus isn't because he's the king of Thanatos. He reigns over Thanatos. He died and was made alive in order to be Lord of the living and the dead. Don't tell me about some place of the dead now. Because death and Hades went into the lake of fire. The place of the dead is now the place where Jesus Christ reigns. And where all who inhabit that place are comforted. To further show the importance of Psalm 98 then backing up slightly. Or 97 in the Septuagint. To Romans this. The epistle, we discover several words. You, if you read it in the Greek, they pop. In Psalm 98.2, gnorizo, which means to make known. It's found in Romans 9.22, 9.23, significantly. To make known is related to apocalypto, to unveil is a weak translation, but to invade with a disclosure is a strong translation. Ethnos or ethne for the nations, Romans 1 5, 1 13, 3 29, twice, 4 17, 4 18, 10 19, twice, 11 11, 11 12, 13, twice, 11 25, all the nations coming in, 15 9, twice, 12, 15 12, twice, 15 16, twice. 15, 18, 15, 27, 16, 4, 16, 26, nations, plural. In 97, 3, Elias, mercy, at the key point in Romans 11, 32, shows mercy to all. Psalm 18 also is reflected in 15, 9. Mercy is revealed to the Israel of God. Truth is found in Romans 15, 8, and panta for all is found 77 times in Romans. I detect a theme. All the ends of the earth then have seen the salvation of our God, says this psalmist, viewing from a standpoint in our future back over the sweep of history with the Christ event right in the heart of it. That's what he sees. And so he comes back down to earth and he says, hey, hey, all creation, all nations, all ends of the earth, shout for joy. And guess what will happen? That'll happen. The last psalm, read it. Everything that has breath 
praise Yahweh. Now, I opened with Moltman, and I want to go to communion, so I'll close with Moltman. In addition to God bringing everlasting life, eternal life, to all humanity, Romans 5.18, justifying life, rectifying life. How do you rectify a people in death? You make them alive. What is justification if not rectification, setting right? How do you set right a people who are dead in trespasses and sins? You make them alive. Who is dead in trespasses and sins? Everybody in Adam. What did God do to rectify everybody dead in sins? He gave them all justifying life, says Romans 5, 18. God not only gives life to his king, but brings life to all the king's subjects by giving life to the king. But I go one step further to say, not only does he bring life through his king to all Humanity, he brings life through his king to all the king's domain, which is all creation in all of its times, in all of history, in all of its times. And so Moltman, once again, and this was very profitable for me when we were in Charleston, to read the Son of Righteousness Arise. My thesis then is that he gives life to all of the king's domain, not just all of his subjects. Paul writes about the justifying life of Jesus with the light on in him. The light's on in Paul. What light? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge that not just all of humanity in all of its times would be given his resurrection life, but so will all creation. As Romans 8, 19 to 23 says, which we'll put off for another time. But with regard to all of creation, consider an observation from Son, S-U-N, of Righteousness Arise by Jürgen Moltmann, page 60. He says, if we go back to the Hebrew root of all flesh, he says, we find the phrase kol basaks. B-A-S-A-X, K-O-L, apostrophe, B-A-S-A-X. All flesh. It means all the living, as in Noah's covenant, which was made with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature. Echo, Psalm 143.2, echo, Romans 3.20. All flesh will not be justified by the works of the law. All flesh will be and has been justified by God performing wonderfully in the deliverance of his son from the dead. He goes on to say this. And that's Genesis 9, 9 to 10, in case you're curious. According to Isaiah 40 and verse 5, Moltman writes, At the end, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. These universal dimensions of life get lost, he says, if we only have human beings in view. In a resurrection of the flesh, human beings will be redeemed together with the whole interwoven fabric of all the living and the living space of the earth. Paul was aware of this when he heard the sighing of all creation. 
And I'll read that briefly. Let's do it really briefly in Romans 8. Which together with us yearns for the redemption of the body. I don't know about you. I'm just pious or not. I yearn for the redemption of this body. And all creation yearns similarly for the redemption or the ransom from its slavery to corruption. Very briefly, and we'll go over it again. This is my translation beginning with Romans 8.16. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we are children, we are also heirs, inheritors, heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. And it doesn't say if, and we may or may not here. It says since. The epair word you used here is a present indicative. Since we are suffering. Seeing that we are suffering. By the very fact that we're in these bodies and the change of the ages and the conflict of the ages. We are suffering together as Christ suffered. And we will also experience the glory into which he was delivered. By God. In order also to be glorified with him. And then it goes on to say. And this is very brief. I'm going to hit this a little more. With more depth. In the very near future. Hopefully. Romans 8.18. For by my accounting. Paul says. By now I'm pretty much on board. With what Paul banks on. In fact he's saying. I'm banking on the fact. That the sufferings of the present time of crisis, kairos, the clashing junction of the ages is what he's talking about. The sufferings of the present time of crisis are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is imminently to be apocalypto, apocalypsed to us. To us can also be in us because ace is a synonym with n. The glory that is about to be, he's talking here about an imminence, no world event, No series of world events need precede the parousia of Christ. It's imminent. The glory that is imminently to be revealed. And then he says, for the creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God. That's the inbreaking revelation. Of eschatological Israel, of all humankind in glorified form, bearing the image of God as the sons of God. All creation is waiting for the real caretakers of creation. Not the greenies. They'll botch it just as much as other people that have botched the creation. Humankind is not capable of the care of the environment, including the universe, until they're glorified. All creation is waiting. We could say all creation is waiting for politicians to get their filthy mitts off on both sides. So, Paul heard the sighing of creation, but it's more than sighing. It's more like a scream because he said birth pangs. I know that women who give birth to children and they don't have any medication are not just sighing from what I understand. 
Paul heard that scream of creation. So did John. John said, I heard all creation, pan katisma. Praising God on the other side of that suffering in Romans 5.13, Revelation 5.13. But in closing, look at it says, for the creation was subject to futility. This goes all the way back to Genesis 1.2. The creation was subjected to futility. It was made void and without form in itself. In itself, separate from the creator, it is void and without form. Not willingly, that means it wasn't made willingly that way, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation that the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that all the creation, pasa he katesis, just like John saying pan katisma in Rev. Rev 5.13. All creation laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs until now. Meaning all of creation in all of its times, including now. But not only is that so, on top of that, Paul is is always saying, on top of that, beyond that, we, those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's the proleptic new creation, the church, the Israel of God, the new creation in its incipient form, Christ corporate, we sigh deeply in ourselves. This explains the sufferings of this present time and our suffering with Christ, which must precede, and in fact, they're the very means of our entry into glory. The sufferings we endure in this life are the very, it's the very shuttle bus that shuttles us into glory. So I say to myself, why gripe? awaiting eagerly the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship, that is, the redemption of our bodies. So when the king gives eternal life to all mankind, he gives it to all of his domain as well. And that's why Isaiah 55, 12 to 13 says, and with that we'll go right to our communion. You will indeed go out with joy, says Isaiah, echoing Psalm 19, Psalm 98 rather, And echoing it all the way into Romans 1 and following. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully, peaceably guided by God. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. Instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. It will make a name for Yahweh as an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. It's with this anticipation that all are invited to participate in the Lord's Supper with us here today together. And we're honored, of course, to have our Madison, Mississippi representatives, single representative family of our little flock there with us for this communion service. Follow the lead of our ushers. Be led. Be led and guided by our ushers. That song that we traditionally have been listening to is written by Randall Wallace, and it's called The Mansions of the Lord, and it's it's celebrating the going to heaven of soldiers 
It was the theme song for the movie entitled We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And Jesus Christ is the first one to die in battle and be received in glory. He died in this battle in which we're engaged, which is why we suffer together with him. He was received into glory as we will be received into glory. The celebration of the Eucharist today is a celebration of Jesus Christ's death until his coming again, until he comes. And that's what Paul spoke about. Remember me, Jesus said, until I come. Use this Lord's Supper. Now, because all of the people of God are effectively together in this communion, and because more than that, Jesus Christ is uniquely present in the Lord's Supper, because we stand in the unison of remembrance and hope, the unison of remembrance of his death and the hope of his coming again is where Jesus lives in present. His presence is the unison of this remembrance and this hope, which is why he says, I'm there in the midst of you. I consider that to be very real and that Jesus Christ is very present with us at the unison of remembrance of his death and the confident expectation of his coming. Remember my death until I come. And in honor of, when I read now, I don't read scholars as if they're scholars. They're my brothers and my sisters. And our discovery is collaborative. We're discovering many things about the Lord. And I respect theologians, the men and women who are writing. I read every day if I can. And... It's with the intention of getting to know the Lord. I picked up something from Paul Nimmo, N-I-M-M-O, which he wrote called The Eucharist and Immortality. In anticipation of today, I read this, and I'm going to just quote a very small part of it. He said, the Eucharistic gathering not only expresses the unity of the community of the church, it also anticipates the eschatological gathering of all peoples into the kingdom of God. And beyond even this, he said, and this shocked me about how this correlates with today's message. And beyond even this, the ultimate referent of the Eucharist is not to the people of the church or even to humanity in general, but to the world, the creation of God in itself and in its entirety. For there will come a day when not only the church And all peoples, but the entirety of creation will, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, and to the glory of God the Father, have their hearts lifted by and to the one who was and is and who is to come. To the one who was, to the one who made himself in need of deliverance and who was raised from the dead who is present here today because the one who was is, and he is here where remembrance meets hope right here. 
our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Moltman also said, another part of the Eucharist, I just kept popping on, uh, hopping onto these Eucharistic themes. He said, in the unison of remembrance and hope, Christ becomes present. The presence of Christ who has come is at the same time the presence of the coming Christ. The presence of Christ who has come is at the same time the presence of the coming Christ. The Christ who has come and made himself to be sin, made himself to be in need of deliverance from the power of sin and the reign of death, and who was delivered and raised from the dead, and the one who is coming in glory to transform and transfigure the universe in all of its times is right here present with us. Right at the cross, right at the juncture of remembrance and expectation is our Lord Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. He chose the bread, the fruit of grain. He chose the fruit of the vine, the unfermented fruit of the vine to in fact show that he is in these things, that he is all in all and that all creation will be redeemed. The bread that represents and attests to his body. The wine or the fruit of the vine unfermented. The unleavened bread, his sinless humanity. The unfermented grape. The blood of our redemption. The blood of Christ that ratifies and confirms the covenant of God with all flesh. And so we partake of this today in the expectation of all creation being liberated from its slavery to corruption because of Christ who was heard by the Father and delivered. He said in the night that he was handed over by betrayal, this bread is the bread of my body. This represents my body which is given for you. Eat the bread. And this cup, which he said, drink all of you, is the cup of the New Testament of my blood. Drink it all in toast to our Lord Jesus Christ. We also like to follow the tradition of the synoptic gospels that after they partook of the first Lord's Supper, they closed with a hymn and exited the upper room where our Lord Jesus Christ would endure the exile for all and initiate the exodus for all on the cross and through his, to his resurrection. So we'll close with a hymn. Once you get out into the hallway, please dispose of the cups and begin your fellowship. But we'll close with this hymn. Thank you, Vicki.